This is the My Weight What to Know podcast, where we talk to medical experts about the latest research on weight management and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. Tonight, we are talking with Dr. David Macklin about CBT and other psychological interventions that can help us reach a healthier weight. Dr. Macklin, thanks so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for inviting me. So you're really one of the pioneers in the obesity medicine space in Canada. You've been working in this field for 18 years. We're so honored to have you here with us tonight. We're going to talk about some of the skills and strategies that folks at home can use, but I'd really like to start out by talking about how the field has changed over those 18 years. Right around the time that I finished my residency, there was a clinical trial that came out called the Diabetes Prevention Program, which took people who were living with pre-diabetes, and the idea was through eating healthily and being active, could these people actually prevent the development of diabetes? And how they looked to help them prevent the onset of diabetes was through ultimately weight management. It was pretty clear still then that living with obesity was probably the leading preventable cause of death and disability in primary care, in medicine. And yet no one was really actively engaging patients and supporting them. So all these years later, we're, uh, I think it's safe to say that Practicing obesity medicine is probably the most exciting and rewarding uh, uh, field of medicine where we're able to support patients and make the most changes in people's health uh, through effective treatment, which we now have, uh, much more effective even than we had back then. So it's a super exciting time now in, in obesity medicine. So let's talk a little bit about those treatments. There are a lot of new, very effective, safe treatments for obesity. Tell us what they are and how they work. So we describe in our clinical practice guidelines, the 2020 clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of obesity in Canada in adults, we describe that there are three pillars to treatment. The first pillar is behavioral therapy or CBT, psychological therapy. The second pillar is medication. And the third pillar is surgery. These are the effective treatments for obesity. Now, you might say, where's diet and exercise, right? And so we think of it a little bit differently in our guidelines. How we describe diet and exercise is we describe those as outcomes. What I mean by that is if treatment is effective, it results in changes in people's eating behaviors and their activity. And so the treatment isn't to eat less, move more they end up making changes in eating behaviors and activity if treatment is successful, behavioral therapy, medical therapy, or surgical therapy. Those are outcomes of treatment. So we don't tell people to eat less, move more. We support them with behavioral interventions. We support them with medication or we support them with surgery. So I think that's probably the opposite of the way most people think about it. They don't think, um, you know, they would think that like, okay, I need to make sure I eat well and exercise and then maybe I'll add a medication. But what I hear you saying is the medication will actually make it easier for you to eat healthier and move more. Am I hearing you right? No, exactly right. Behavioral therapy and medical therapy, for example, will put someone in a position where making changes in eating behaviors and activity behaviors are more easy more sustainable, more natural, something that they can do long-term. So Dr. Sue Peterson said something a while ago that has really stuck with me. She said that for most people living with obesity, diet and exercise alone will not be enough to reach a healthier weight. Is that true? And is that why medical treatments exist? So one of the key principles of why we describe obesity as a real disease is because of the concept that the brain defends against fat loss. So I always feel like the bearer of bad news. 
when I, when I share this with patients or other individuals. The brain is expert at recognizing fat loss and fighting against it. If our ancestors lost weight, it wasn't to look good for a wedding or, or for bathing suit season. It was because the food supply was interrupted or even more commonly illness. And so there's this really effective system in, in subconscious parts of our brain that is there to recognize fat loss and fight against it. Primarily, by the way, by increasing appetite. So when fat loss is recognized in our brain, our brain is expert at increasing appetite, decreasing metabolic rate, all in favor of weight regain. So to answer what Sue is mentioning is that if someone then just through willful effort tries to lose weight and successfully loses weight, then they face biology. And that's the concept of anti-obesity medications. It's an easy way to understand what anti-obesity medications do. They defend against that defense that the brain otherwise mounts. And so anti-obesity medications will dampen the appetite response that otherwise would happen as people are losing weight. And so without that increased appetite response, then someone is more free and more capable of making food decisions that are aligned with their values and the direction they want to be going. So let's talk about the role of genetics when it comes to weight management. How much of our weight is determined by our genes? So there are various numbers that describe the risk of the heritability of obesity. And somewhere between 50 and 70 or 75% is the number we land on based on the method we use to study the genetic vulnerabilities. So for example, twin studies, where you study twins that are identical or twins that are not identical and they're either raised in the same house or raised in a different house. It's actually a well-validated method of scientific inquiry. And that method tells us somewhere around 70% of someone's risk of struggling with weight in their lifetime is passed down in our genes. And then there's something called epigenetics, which are changes that happen either in utero, in the womb, that sounds unfair, or even based on what someone is exposed to in their environment as they're growing up, which can also make changes in someone's genes that favor weight regain uh, or weight regain. And so, yes, it's quite well established that living with obesity is a uh, primarily genetically conferred condition. But what, again, most people are surprised about is that those genes are primarily in the central nervous system. Obesity is considered a brain condition. When we study genome-wide association studies that look into the entire genome of a human and see what are the genes that are associated with BMI, with weight, the absolute great majority of those genes uh, predict for changes that happen in the central nervous system. And so this is a brain-centered condition, and that makes sense because the brain defends against fat loss, it recognizes fat loss and fights against it, and therefore someone is more likely to survive and pass on their genes. And so that's how this uh, perpetuates this risk of obesity in our population. So you're the co-author in the clinical practice guidelines of the chapter about behavioral or psychological interventions. Tell us what some of those interventions are and how they can help over the long run with weight management. So I love that question because psychological interventions, what does that mean? It sounds like a black box, right? It's like medication, I get that. Surgery, I get that. But what's this behavioral stuff? And that's the response of a patient or a clinician. So it is kind of a black box. We will tell patients that their weight is not something that they have control over. Weight is not a behavior. You don't weight something. Right, we, we have behaviors that we have at best control over. 
our eating behaviors and our activity. But when we're doing our best, when someone is living their most modest lifestyle that's still enjoyable and sustainable, exactly where their body lands is not something that we can entirely predict. We would say, invite a patient to understand that when you lose weight, all weight loss slows and slows and slows and plateaus somewhere. And that's primarily because the brain defends against fat loss with increased appetite and decreased metabolic rate. So how strongly will your brain fight against fat loss and defend against it? That's primarily genetically determined. So we don't know the answer to that. So what we would do from an expectations perspective is we would invite, invite a patient to consider finding what's called their best weight. It's the weight they land at when they're living their most modest, livable, enjoyable lifestyle that's at a level of effort that they can sustain long-term. You work on those things that you have control over, and then your brain and body will kind of tell you where that lands. We call that someone's best weight. So there, addressing expectations becomes a second component of a behavioral intervention. These are what behavioral interventions look like. So behavioral interventions are almost the way we think about obesity and the treatments that we're engaging in to try to reach our best weight. One of the concepts of behavioral therapy, which many people don't understand, it's kind of a fun concept, is that we as humans are automatic thinkers. Because you mentioned changing the way we think about things. The, the first concept there is to make someone consider that how we think is actually automatic. Right, so that's how the human brain works. We have a quick thinking automatic. If you say the word white, here, say the word white seven times. White, 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 white. Perfect, and what do cows drink? Milk. How sure are you of that answer? 100% sure. Oh my gosh, what do cows drink? <laughs> <laughs> that is great. So, <laughs> so my brain is just programmed to think that way. Right, your automatic thinking brain heard cow, drink, and white. And it said milk is the answer, and it popped into your head and there was nothing you could do about it. So what we're able to demonstrate there is that a thought would enter your mind automatically, and that you trust those automatic thoughts. Right. And they're usually right, but they are prone to error. So what if someone is having a set, here's two examples of where automatic thoughts work in behavioral therapy. The first example is if someone is in a moment that they're making a food decision, and they're experiencing a strong wanting. The brain has been uh, activated in the direction of motivating them towards something that's delicious and tasty, almost in a Pavlovian way. Maybe it's late night, watching TV, relaxing, kids have gone to bed. Wanting is happening in their brain. So what are the automatic thoughts that come in that moment? We call those permission thoughts or automatic cognitions. Examples would be, it's been such a long day, I'm so stressed, this will help me relax. Um, I'm not really on track anyway, so what difference does it really make? Or I'll just go see what there is and I'll just have a little. Or I'll just do this now and tomorrow I'll have less. Wait, so you're saying those are automatic thoughts that come into the mind and it's just like the word milk, potentially in error? And so the invitation, again, more about what behavioral therapy is, is to just invite someone to consider noticing that process. Wait, so you're telling me, oh, Right, there I was at night and I saw, as we discussed, that automatic thoughts. Even just noticing that is a big step forward because otherwise it's impulse followed by automatic thought, followed by behavior, and it just becomes this loop. And so, yes, changing someone's thinking ultimately in those moments is a key example 
of a key behavioral process that is associated with people uh, both losing weight and keeping it off. So we interviewed you several years ago and you introduced us to this term of permission thoughts. And once you described it, you know, I've had a long day, I'll just have a little bit. I noticed it within myself constantly. So you're right, awareness is a very big first step. And it, it was crazy to me to notice how many of them pop up throughout the day. How do you encourage the patients that you work with to, to deal with those permission thoughts? Well, first of all, to destigmatize, right? So, okay, so you're saying these are automatic thoughts and that's how my brain works and therefore it's not a flaw in character or a lack of willpower or me not being undisciplined. It's a normal psychological process. That's the beginning, right? Because that's destigmatizing. Then it's like, oh, okay, so this is how my brain works. And so that's the very beginning. And then really, I mean, if it's a next step, the next step is, okay, is that true? Um, because I've had a long day and I'm super stressed, this will make me feel better? Actually, it might not. In fact, if I think about it, often I'll feel worse. So then the next step might be changing those thoughts. That, by the way, is called cognitive restructuring. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. Not so mysterious, right? It's like recognizing automatic thoughts come in these moments and even just noticing them, or even maybe at best, starting to change how I think in these automatic thinking patterns and thinking differently. And we talked about it in the moment of wanting. There's only one other example when people will experience automatic thoughts where behavioral therapy is really important, which is in a moment of setback. In 18 years, and you speak to enough patients, you start to realize that there are really only three common setbacks in weight management. An individual will either experience being in the aftermath of an off-track day, They'll experience getting on a scale if they wish to weigh themselves and seeing a number not in their favor. Or they'll be exposed to their image, seeing themselves in a mirror or in a photograph or in a reflection of a building. And this then becomes the other example of when an, an individual will experience automatic thoughts. And in this case, the automatic thoughts will speak poorly about who they are as a person and their capacity to manage their weight. But again, the process is the same. So you're telling me I can start to anticipate that in these moments of setback, I'm gonna have automatic thoughts, just like the word milk might be an error. I'm gonna have automatic thoughts that speak poorly about myself and my capacity to manage my weight and that I can just notice that? Yeah, that's the other area of cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive restructuring, restructuring someone's thinking. So once we're aware that we're automatic thinkers, and once we're aware of the times and settings, a moment of wanting, a moment of setback, of when automatic thoughts will come, then you're in a dramatically advantaged state in being able to recognize the thinking and maybe even change the way of thinking. So what's the cost of those thoughts being unrecognized? The cost is, this is a tenant of psychology. Thoughts lead to emotions, lead to behavior. It's a fundamental. So if the thoughts are, I suck, here I go again, it's never gonna work. Even when I try, I lose, but then I regain. I don't have enough willpower, I can't do this. It's not gonna happen. And those thoughts come automatically. What emotions follow? Frustration, disappointment, demotivation, and ultimately resignation. So that's how someone will fall off track. And we know the greatest predictor of long-term success in weight management is just adherence. Kind of getting kind of after a setback up rolling your sleeves up um, and, and, and moving forward. 
So I know you focus on helping your patients develop skills and strategies they can use at high risk times. So talk a little bit about the, the things that folks can do at home to help them be less likely to overeat at times when they're most vulnerable. The human brain works in a, a way um, of learning that we call Pavlovian learning or associative learning. And it's not entirely intuitive to everyone that the appetite system works this way. What we mean by intuitive, what we mean by uh, Pavlovian learning or associative learning is that whatever the sets of cues that are around us in a moment that our brain is experiencing a very positive experience from foods that it treasures and values, sugar, uh, fat, salt, foods that confer survival in previous environments, our brain is very good at recognizing from taste and at the level of the gut when we are eating these valuable foods for survival. And when that signal of these foods is experienced, the brain will learn where we are and a programming will take place. So for example, if it's our couch and TV and late at night and, and relaxing and kids have gone to bed and that setting has been paired enough times with something tasty or these types of um, uh, foods, then a conditioning takes place such that eventually those settings themselves gain the power to generate the central symptom of struggling with weight. The central symptom of struggling with weight, which we call wanting or desire or urge or craving or attention bias, meaning it's on my mind. What's interesting about the advent of mo more and more effective medications in our field is first of all, that what I just mentioned is what medications treat, right? This is a fascinating question to doctors. When we're treating asthma with medication, we're treating wheezing and coughing and shortness of breath. When we're treating osteoarthritis with medication, we're treating joint swelling and pain and disability. If we're treating someone living with obesity with medication, what symptom are we treating? It trips up a lot of people, docs, patients. And what I just mentioned is what we're treating. We're treating this reflexive neurological event that someone is genetically vulnerable to that has been conditioned through associations, repeated associations over time between certain settings and these types of foods that sees that setting generate a strong wanting, a desire, craving. And that becomes the symptom. And so when we successfully treat someone with an effective medication and medication is only becoming more effective, a patient will describe, there I was in that setting but it really wasn't coming to my mind. I wasn't really interested. Or I thought, sure, I could, but I'd rather not. And so I just kind of moved on. It wasn't stealing my attention. And patients will describe more bandwidth, more capacity to be in those moments and to stop and pause and to hear the automatic thinking, dispel the automatic thinking, think differently. So there we describe the main symptom of struggling with weight which is this drive and this motivation to calories, which is quite natural, by the way, a perfect system for 40,000 years ago, but um, not effective in our modern food environment. It can work against us. And so fortunately, behavioral therapy and medical therapy and surgical therapy all address that very specific symptom. So Dr. Bachlin, really what you're describing is that medications treat kind of that drive to eat or, or wanting, and that's what CBT does as well. I think the best way to think about that is that CBT will help someone be aware of the intrinsic motivation and drive to calories that they were born genetically vulnerable to. And the CBT would start by destigmatizing that, right? So imagine that response so at the CBT level first before medication. 
just imagine the response in an individual who's now, from a destigmatizing perspective, able to say, oh, so wait a second. So you're telling me what happens to me at night, for example. You're saying that is a reflexive neurological event that I was born genetically vulnerable to, that has become conditioned through a lifetime, even through childhood. And now those settings and cues generate reflexively in a part of my brain that I don't even have access to, this strong drive and motivation, and I'm subject to that, and it's difficult to self-regulate against that? Oh, okay, right? That's not weakness, that's not a flawed character. That's real neuroscience and genetics and genetic vulnerability. So CBT, as relates to wanting, the main symptom of struggling with weight, CBT starts with the destigmatization opportunity that it presents and an understanding. And therefore, if it's not a flawed character, then what can I do about it? And then it becomes about CBT strategies and plus or minus medication. Last question for you, Dr. Macklin. What is the number one thing you wish people knew about weight loss? The mantra would be real disease, not your fault, and treatment exists. So that last point is what's changing most dramatically now. We're at the advent of uh, what we would call a new generation or crossing a chasm to where we're able to support patients more and more effectively in a very safe way uh, for them to be able to manage this chronic and complex condition that they've struggled with for so many years. So I would say the main message is and it's a very strong uh, message in my mind is that we now have hope. There, we're in a, a time now where individuals living with this real condition can receive effective treatment that supports them uh, in a safe way long-term. So hope, that's my message. I love it. Dr. Macklin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. We will be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night. This podcast episode was sponsored by Novo Nordisk Canada. It was created independently by My Weight What to Know with no influence from Novo Nordisk.